Good morning. Go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 12 in your Bibles. Teaching notes are available online. You can download them on our church website. My message this morning is uh, pretty simple, straightforward. It's essentially a call, a simple call to us as a spiritual family, the body of Christ, to return to core truths and core values that stabilize the Christian heart in times of trouble and deception. I don't think that there is some great mystery that the body of Christ must come upon and discover in order to remain stable, steadfast, pure, humble in the times in which we live and in the days ahead. Rather, I think that there needs to be a return from the body of Christ more and more to the evident truths within the word of God these truths bring stability to our hearts and cause us to live with great joy and a sense of rejoicing and a sense of purpose even as circumstances become increasingly more challenging. What I love about this passage in Revelation 12 is that it defines Christian victory. Let's go ahead and read this together. In verse seven, just to summarize the first couple parts, war breaks out in heaven between Michael the archangel and the devil. And in verse nine, the great dragon is displaced from heaven. The serpent of old called the devil and Satan, and the key phrase that I want us to focus in on is that he's the one that deceives the whole world. There is increasing deception that is sweeping across the whole world. But the Lord is calling us to overcome in the midst of that deception, to walk with greater clarity and humility and insight. Satan is cast to the earth and his angels are cast out with him. And then there's a loud voice in heaven who's saying something that's very important to us. He says, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. These are all very important statements. The accuser of our brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast down. And this is what we're gonna spend most of our time looking at today, verse 11. They, meaning the saints, they overcame the deceiver, the one who has deceived the whole world. They overcame him, and here's how they overcame. Here is how they were victorious. They overcame by the blood of the lamb. They overcame by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. I wanna read that again. They overcame deception and the power of the evil one in this present age. They were victorious because of the blood of the lamb 
and the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives unto death, which implies that they were losing their life actually in death, and yet they're still counted as overcoming and victorious in the eyes of heaven, in the eyes of the Lord. And we know that because of the glorious truth of the resurrection, that even in death, Christ was victorious. And even in death, the saints across the earth and throughout history, both past, present, and future, are victorious because of the power of the resurrection. I wanna pray, Father, we ask that your word would be like a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We cry out, Lord, for the word of God in the body of Christ to be like a lamp to her feet and a light to her path in increasingly dark days. We ask that you would cut through the fog and the confusion, that you would remove, Lord, the spirit of deception and lying, the cloudiness that is increasing in our culture and society, and you would call the body of Christ back to the apostolic gospel, the truth of the word of God, the blood of the lamb, the word of our testimony, and that we would not love our lives even unto death. This is how you define Christian victory. In Jesus' name, amen. God is preparing a church who is going to be victorious and overcome the spirit of deception. He's gonna deliver his people, the body of Christ, from the power of the evil one, from the grip of the enemy. He's going to deliver the body of Christ from lukewarm, plastic, half-hearted love. What we're experiencing in society right now and in culture, the pressures that we're facing are a, an alarm that is being sounded by the Holy Spirit for the church to return to her first love. That is the main message that the Lord wants us to get as we're trying to figure out what's happening in politics, as we're trying to figure out what's happening in the nations, in Afghanistan, the nation of Israel, COVID-19, North Korea, increasing pressure, increasing trouble. The Lord is calling the church to return to her first love. He's calling us back not to new things, but to elementary things. The power of his sacrifice, the power of the indwelling spirit, and he is calling us to see victory in the way that he sees and defines victory. The church is gonna be victorious, and she is gonna reign with Christ in the age to come. And the Holy Spirit is preparing the bride right now. All of the pressures, all of the breakthrough, all of the glory and the trouble that is coming, that is touching your life even now, is because the Holy Spirit is preparing you to be an equally yoked partner to Jesus. He's preparing you in love. He is calling you to a deep place of humility and dependency upon him. He is calling you to engage in a life of prayer like you never have before, to give your life to the word, to give your life to the spirit of humility. This is what the Lord is calling the church to right now. And sadly, what we're seeing is that as the cultural temperature is rising, so to speak, 
that call, the call to love Jesus and the call to Christian victory is getting lost in all of the white noise of the news and the media and the pressures of the day. We would rather spend hours and hours debating our political stance, debating vaccines, debating mass, debate, debate, debate. We would rather spend hours and hours and hours doing this when the Lord is clearly calling the body of Christ to engage in the place of prayer and extravagant devotion before him because that is the only safe place in the rising deception of this hour. To overcome is actually a very practical thing. In other words, there are practical choices that we make to be an overcoming and victorious church. It is not left to chance. It is not left to wishful thinking. Sometimes you hear believers say, well, I hope that I overcome in that hour. I hope I don't deny the Lord. As if there's some wishful happenstance that when we arrive in the moment of pressure, that we're going to choose righteousness, we're gonna choose love. And I wanna tell you that walking in an overcoming victorious spirit is actually a very practical thing. It's not something that we do wishfully, but it's something that we resolve to do. How do we resolve to do it? We make small, practical choices today that are easier tomorrow. We don't leave our faith up to mere happen chance circumstances that are unknown to us 10 years from now. We don't leave our faith. We don't even leave our finances that way. Think about your own life. We wouldn't say our financial future, wow, I hope it just all works out someday. I hope that there's a sense of security. I'm talking just in the natural, related to our finances and financial planning. There's no one that's sitting around just thinking, well, hopefully it just works out. And hopefully there's enough money for my retirement and they don't have to work full time anymore. No one would do that. And if they are, I mean, they're just, they're set up for disaster. How do you financially plan? You see the future and then you make choices today in small incremental amounts so that you are prepared when that day is upon you. <clears throat> and in a similar way, the body of Christ is meant to make small practical choices today so that we are divinely and rightly positioned to walk in a victorious spirit in the days ahead. The church's victory, paragraph C, the church's victory is unlike the victory of other religions or other movements. We serve a God who defines victory very differently than anyone else. Our God is the only God that sent his own son to die and called that victory. Our God is the only God that looked down at the landscape of humanity with the desire to rescue people and he saw the cross as the only solution to apprehend that victory and bring us into eternal glory with him forever and ever and ever. When he looked at victory, he saw a cross. 
when he planned out and sketched out what it meant for God to redeem us from the power of sin, to redeem us from the power of death, he said the only way is for my son to be a lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth. Do you know that you serve a God who sees beyond the grave, who sees victory even in the midst of death. Why? Because he has the power to raise you from the dead. He has the power to raise his own son from the dead. And so when God defines victory, it's very different. When the God of Israel defines victory, it is different than the present rulers and the powers of this age. It is different than present religions. It is different than present politics. It is different in every single way. Our God is holy and transcendent, and Isaiah tells us that his thoughts are far above our thoughts and his ways beyond our ways. Who in their right mind would say, today I'm going to go accomplish the victory? Well, how are you gonna do that? I'm going to go suffer and die for those who are guilty. That is what our God has done. And not only what our God has done, but what our God is presently doing. The strategy from heaven through the mission of Christ upon the earth is the same strategy for the body of Christ even in this hour. He didn't switch strategies. He says, I will bring forth victory through blood. I will bring forth victory through those that do not love their lives even unto death. And the blood of the martyrs is going to be the seed for the great harvest. Victory in Christianity is laying down our life for the sake of Christ and for the name of Christ. Because when we entered into covenant with God at the new birth, when you gave your life to him, he signed it. You signed it. And in the fine print, but it's not so fine, it's only fine in Western Christianity, in the fine print, it included this, your life is no longer your own. Your dreams are no longer your own. Your time is no longer your own. Your energy is no longer your own. Your money, your sexuality, your preferences, your comforts, your future, the location of where you live, and what you do with your kingdom assignment. You entered in a covenant with God, you signed it, you agreed it, you signed your life away to the God of Israel. Most of us didn't understand that when we came to the Lord. And even fewer, you know, still today, are still grappling with this reality that your life is not your own. Paul says in Galatians 2.20 that he's been crucified with Christ. And it was no longer Paul that lived, but Christ that lived in him. Do you know that Paul was not making some grandiose statement about how amazing he was, but that's the statement of every Christian. When you gave your life to Jesus, you were crucified with Christ, and the life that you live is no longer your life, it's his life. And he has full right to get into your life, to disrupt it, mess it up, make it look like whatever he wants, and we don't get to complain because it's not our life, it's his life. 
We're trading the temporary 70 years of this life, of the toil, the sweat, the tears, the angst, the unfulfillment. We're trading our 70 years for a billion years in the glory of God in the resurrection. You're trading your life. You're giving up your life to receive his life and enter into the joy and the glory of your Lord. When Jesus said in John 10, verse 15, he said this, I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life. It's not my life. It's not my will. It's my Father's will. My mission is to come and lay down my life. And what we've done in Western Christianity so often is We've emasculated the meaning of that verse, to lay down our lives. We say that we're laying down our lives, but it's become a cheapened statement. It's become something that did not mean what it meant when Jesus said, I lay down my life. And then later in John 13, verse 38, he asked Peter the same question, will you lay down your life? When Jesus said that, He didn't just mean live in American suburbs, be kind to people, and kind of bear along with the troubles and the domestic challenges of life. And here I am, laying down my life. There is a part of laying down our life in the day-to-day whereby we are a living sacrifice to God. We resist the urges and desires of the flesh. We resist carnality. We say yes to the righteousness of God. We operate in the gifts of the Spirit. We bless. We bless our enemies, etc., etc. But the ultimate meaning of laying down our life is to physically die for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the call of discipleship. That's what it means to count the cost of being a disciple is that no matter where your life takes you, wherever the Spirit leads you, that you would be willing to lay down, which means give up and sacrifice your actual life just like Christ did. This is the basis of Christianity. This is the introduction This isn't for the believer that's 50 years in the Lord and so mature and living on the foreign mission field somewhere and wow, aren't they so amazing? They're ready to lay down their life. No, Jesus said, count the cost in Luke 14. Pick up your cross, follow me. This is the first step in being my disciple. Lose your life. You sign it away. You give it to me. You lose it so that you can find it. You give up on the riches and the dreams and your own glory and your own fame and your own reputation. You give all that up for the name of Jesus Christ. You give up what is temporary for that which is eternal. We're called to lay down our lives. Now the trouble is, is that many were brought into the faith, the Christian faith, on pretense. They were brought in on a pretense. They were told, God loves you and he's gonna forgive your sins and he'll remove your guilt and shame. And those are all true things. But whoever was delivering the gospel message and telling that person did not include 
Your life is no longer your own. Pick up your cross, follow Jesus, live the life he did, die the death he died. They did not leave that part in. And what has happened in the church in many parts, especially in the West, is that our faith has become therapeutic. Our faith has become shallow. Our faith has become plastic and self-serving. We'll go to church on Sunday, put some money in the offering bucket so that our conscience is appeased and that we can go living, living on our carnal lives, pursuing our own wants, pursuing our own desires, pursuing our own dreams, because God exists for me. And I've added him into my life like a Pinterest wall. I have all my dreams and all the things I want and all I needed was to be absolved of my guilt and shame so I prayed the prayer of salvation so that Jesus would be added into my life. Now he follows me around like Jiminy Cricket helping to just make all of my circumstances better. And we've traded the, the pure gospel for a therapeutic, self-serving gospel the American gospel. And I want to tell you that God is not okay with this. He's not okay with his bride in America serving a therapeutic gospel. He is not okay with him being a financial advisor in heaven that's here to enrich our lives every time we knock on his door with a need. He's not okay with that because he's the God of the cosmos and he's the Lord of all creation. And all the nations are going to bow down before him. And all the kings are going to tremble at his appearing. And he is knocking on the door of the church in this very hour. And he is calling us to a place of humility and repentance that we would return to our first love and that we would return to the apostolic gospel and that we would do business with what Christ has actually called us to, to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him. In Luke 14, 27, like I referenced earlier, Jesus said, he who does not bear his own cross cannot be my disciple. And like I mentioned, that term even of the denial of self and the bearing of cross, it has become a sitcom joke for how hard our domestic life is. It's funny, but it's tragic. We're putting the kids to bed. They're going buck wild. They won't listen to anything we say. We tell our spouse, I'm just here bearing my cross. We've got a little bit of pressure at our job. Our supervisor's turning up the heat on us. They're misunderstanding us. Four other employees lied about us. I'm bearing my cross. It's become almost this way of saying that any challenge that we face in life, even the ones that we inflict upon ourselves, are somehow walking in what Jesus walked in, and that is not true. And I know that when people say that or joke about that, they don't actually mean they're suffering in the way that our Lord suffered. 
But I want us to keep in mind what Jesus called us to. Look at this, Luke 14, verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What did he mean by that? He didn't just mean that we bear long in hard and challenging circumstances. You know, you're, it's not just Christians that have challenging circumstances. It's not just Christians that are betrayed. It's not just Christians who are demoted and have challenging issues in their life. It's everyone, it is the human experience. So bearing the cross doesn't just mean enduring hard circumstances. And when Jesus said it in the ultimate sense, he meant this, John 19 verse 17. This is what he meant. Jesus went out bearing his cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. He went to the place of public execution. He went to the place where they were going to torture him and he was going to pour out his life as a ransom for many. To bear our cross means to walk as Christ walks and to pour out our lives for the will of God, even if it means losing our actual physical life. That's what bearing the cross meant. And that's what it meant to Christ. And that's what it meant to the disciples. Bearing the cross meant that they would bear the burden and the will of God and the purposes of God in spite of their own desires or comfort or convenience, in spite of their own plans, and many of their lives would be cut short by the evil one. And yet scripture counts them as victorious. This is how our God defines victory. In God's mercy, he is giving the church in the West time. He is giving us time. Just like a woman that is going into sorrows and the pain of childbirth, her contractions are not immediate second after second, but there is a pause and a reprieve inside. And every single contraction is meant to tell her and everyone in the house, the baby is coming. And one of the things that we often lose in looking at the signs of the times through the scripture is that there is a sign in Matthew 24 called the sign of his appearing. And when he appears in Matthew 25, he sits on his throne of glory and he's going to judge the nations of the earth. Beloved, what we're experiencing with these signs, birth pangs, Global catastrophes that are touching the earth is meant to point the people of God to the day of the Lord so that we do business with God, so that we get our lives right and clean, so that we can appear blameless in holiness and purity at the judgment seat of Christ. Scripture tells us that the day of the Lord is coming like a fire in 1 Corinthians 3, and that fire is going to reveal all of our life works, everything that we've done, everything that we've said. When we look out at the landscape of what's happened, even in the last 18 months in the earth, we must ask ourselves, 
are we fixated more and more on that day when we will appear before our Lord? Is our life being more and more conformed to the things of God? Is our mouth being more and more conformed to the things of God? Is our life being shaped and pulled into the narrow path? That's what the pressures are meant to do. They're meant to purify our love. And right now there is so much deception, in my opinion, rampant through the body of Christ because the prayer rooms throughout this nation are empty. And it was only 20 years ago that we had a great catastrophe called 9-11, where the prayer rooms in America were filled only maybe for two or three days, but they were filled as people in desperation were crying out to God. 20 years later, we have a great, significant occurrence, a pestilence, a plague, a virus, and yet the prayer rooms in this nation and many nations are vastly empty. People are not crying out to God. They are not turning to God in a deeper way. And they would rather spend their days watching the news channels and the media and debating over whether, I'm not even gonna go there. You get the point. Beloved, the signs, the pressures, they are meant to turn us to God. Joel 2 the Lord is sounding an alarm. He's saying to his people, turn to me with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. How is the fasting, weeping, mourning life of the church in America right now? How is the fast? That is the barometer by which we're to measure how we are responding to the hand of the Lord as he is setting it upon his bride, and he is saying, I am not going to let you stay lukewarm. I am not going to let you stay deceived. I am going to wake you up. The Lord wants the church established in key truths related to victory and overcoming. He wants us established in these truths of Revelation 12, verse 11. He wants us to be confident in the cross, the blood of Christ. That's where he wants the church's confidence to come from, the cross. When our confidence arises from the cross, it means that our faith and our, our confidence is not based in our efforts, in our gifting, in our ministry, in our money, in our strategies. He doesn't want us to derive a sense of confidence from those things. He wants our confidence to be in the sacrifice of Jesus, who looked at his enemies with such tenderness, and he said, I will die in your stead. I will live the life you could not live. I will bear the wrath of my Father that you could not bear. I will do it for you. I will grant you my grace, but you must receive it. He wants us established in fellowship with the Trinity. That's the word of the testimony. The word of the testimony is that the testimony of the saints would be established in the things of God. What is it that the cross has brought us into? He wants us established with an eternal mindset that we would not hope or place our hope 
in the temporal circumstances of the present age, lest we despair. One year ago, we would have been about six months into the initial outbreak of the virus. One year ago, most people were believing that it was gonna all wrap up in just a month or two. We were just a moment away from it all ending and life going back to normal. And they were saying, we gotta have hope. You're hearing it many places. We've gotta have hope. We've gotta keep hope alive. But their hope was anchored in a temporal circumstance. Their hope was anchored in the desire for their lives to return to normal. Their hope, the hope of Christians, was that their lives would return to normal. Their normal lives were not good enough in accordance with what the bridegroom wants. He doesn't want us to return to our normal lives. You mean return to my normal life of boredom and compromise and sin and half-heartedness? Return to my normal life of hidden alcoholism and addiction to pornography? That's what I'm supposed to return to? Return to my materialism and love of money and, and things and lust and envy and greed? That's what we're supposed to return to? No, the Lord wants our hope anchored in the age to come. Set your mind on things above, not on things beneath. Beloved, we're citizens of another age. We're citizens of another kingdom. The kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever and ever. The future of the kingdoms of this world is to be shattered by the kingdom of our Lord that is coming from heaven like a stone cut out without hands. And the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and his Lord. Why? Because he's going to take them over. It's the gospel of the kingdom. It's the holy invasion. It is that God is going to break open the sky and emerge from the holy of holies and shout with victory and invade the planet and take over the kingdoms and subdue the nations. That's what he's going to do. That is our hope. That is our victory. That is our citizenship. And we will be with him forever. Go to the end of page two if you're following along with the notes. Overcoming three keys. Three keys to overcome. John was shown an overcoming victorious church. Touched on these briefly, but I'm gonna, just for the sake of time, highlight these again right here at the end, the last few moments. They overcome by the blood of the Lamb. The blood establishes the heart in confidence that our sins are forgiven by the work of Christ upon the cross. As much as we believe the message of the gospel near daily, near daily, it is common for the Christian to enter into a place of striving in order to earn the righteousness of God. We condemn ourselves 
Others condemn us. The enemy accuses us. We wrestle in our thoughts, in our emotions. Often negative emotions overtake our life because we believe that we are disqualified before God and that if we were just a little bit more radical, if we were just a little bit more fiery, if we were just a little bit more like, you know, Sally, the Bible study leader, that God would accept us and approve us. Our sins are always before us. They're the main conversational piece between us and God. We don't repent of them. We worry about them. We don't confess them and turn from them. We just replay them over and over in our minds and try and will ourselves to overcome them. We must allow Jesus to pay for them, to cleanse us from our sin and our iniquity, to restore in us the song of our salvation, to run to God and not away from him. Beloved, when the next sign occurs, the next global pandemic or famine or whatever's coming next, I don't know, whenever the next thing happens, make it a goal that the cross and the blood of Jesus is going to be in a lot of your Facebook posts. Talk about that. Talk about him. Talk about his glorious, sanctifying power, his blood that washes away the sins of the world as our only hope and our only way of salvation, our only way to the Father. Talk about him. Tell your children about him. Become gospel-minded in our marriages, in our families, in our homes. Talk about the blood of Jesus that washes away the filth of our iniquity when we repent and return to God. Page three, paragraph C. They overcame by the word of their testimony. The testimony of the apostles was the joy of fellowshipping with the Trinity by the Spirit. Fellowshipping with the Trinity by the Spirit. That happens through simple conversation with the Spirit around the Word of God. We've got to get more than one hour of Bible and 10 hours of the news into our minds and hearts. We're about at a 10 to 1 ratio. I was talking to my friend who's a, a, a pastor and he said, I'm showing up on Sunday mornings. I'm at such a loss because my congregation has consumed 10 to 15 or 20 hours of a secular news narrative that week. And I'm supposed to, in 30 minutes, convince them of the truth of God's word. It's impossible. It's a broken Formula. It will not work for the body of Christ. I'm not saying this because I'm a pastor or a preacher. I'm saying this as your brother. I have to fight the amount of garbage that I'm intaking. I have to shut it out and get my mind into the narrative of the word of God. Because when I don't, I get overtaken with anxiety and fear and depression. I start getting edgy. I start getting angry. I start calling for people to be punished and prosecuted and locked up. My tenderness, even for my enemies, is gone. Because the ratio's broken. 10 hours in the media and one hour in the word will not 
work. It will not awaken the body of Christ to the urgency of the hour in which we live. Listen to what the Apostle John says, 1 John 1, 3 and 4. This is the word of his testimony, and it should be the word of ours. That which we have seen, that which we have heard, we declare it. We've seen the power of God. We've seen the person of Christ. And though we have not seen him with our eyes, we've seen him by faith, and we've seen his works in the word of God. That which we have seen, that which we have heard, we declare. That's the word of our testimony. Listen to this. He goes on and says, truly, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. This is our testimony. Everything that we've seen, everything that we've heard, the whole point is so that we would have fellowship with God. God purchased your soul and forgave your sin and redeemed you to him. Do you fellowship with him? Because that's the whole point of the cross. That's the whole point of the new covenant, to bring us in to the burning, revelatory encounter with the Godhead. That's what he's after. And that formula of 10 hours in the media and 10 minutes fellowshipping with God is not going to work. It is going to break. Paragraph D. The third thing is that they did not love their lives even unto death. Christians must gain an eternal perspective. And our life in this age is only the beginning of an eternal existence. We deny ourselves in this age. We submit ourselves to the word of God and the authority of scripture. Well, I don't like what the authority of God and the scripture tells me. I don't like what it tells me to do with my money. I don't like what it tells me to do with my sexuality. I don't like how it defines marriage. I don't like this. I don't like that. So what? So what? Deny yourself. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Come under the authority of the word of God. Have a burning heart of love and live for a billion years in glory and joy and pleasure forevermore. The temporal age, the momentary light affliction that we experience in this life cannot be compared to the riches of the glory of God that we will experience thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Do you know there's a day coming when you're gonna step foot in the new Jerusalem, that diamond city for the first time? You're gonna smell fragrances you've never smelled before. You're gonna see glory like you've never seen it before. You're gonna hear sounds that will make your soul cry out in worship and adoration of God. Imagining walking through the streets of that celestial city, the radiating light of God is reflecting off of every building and surface. Your very being is emanating the glory of God. And there's a moment that you're gonna turn a corner around a building and you're gonna see Yahweh seated on his throne. You're gonna see that consuming, 
raging, glorious fire, that tornado of glory that surrounds his throne. Lightnings, thunderings, voices, rumbling, emanating out of the very being of God. And in that moment, you will look back at your time on this earth and it will be but a shadow and a vapor. It will be as valuable as ashes. You're gonna see God. You're going to dwell with God forever. Pleasure, delight will course through your body. He'll wipe away the tears from your eye. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more sighing. There will be no more pain. The emotional pain, the physical pain, the pain of being misunderstood, the pain of neglect, the pain of torment, the pain of abuse. There will be no more pain. You will be transformed and in the very presence of God forever. No one will take it away from you. Wisdom will be justified. Let's stand. Paul tells us to set our mind on things above, not on things beneath. To set our mind on things above. We hope in another age. We trust in a God that we cannot see at this time with our physical eyes, but we see him with the eyes of our heart. Father, let our faith be strengthened by your word in the name of Jesus. We ask for power. Power power to walk in the blood of the lamb to walk by the word of our testimony to love not our own lives even unto death we ask you that you would get the mind of the body of christ out of the fog out of the haze out of the power of debate and the deception of the spirit of the age, the drunkenness of immorality, the drunkenness of perversion, the drunkenness. We ask you that you would deliver us, God. Come out of, my, come out of her, my people. Revelation 18, verse 4. Come out of her, my people. Get our minds and our hearts and our lives out of the prevailing spirit of this age. Out of materialism, out of licentiousness, out of drunkenness, spiritual drunkenness, natural drunkenness. Get us out and get us clear and get us clean and get us ready to be the bride of Christ, a bride made ready. Come Holy Spirit. Father, we want to see what you see. Just right now, I just want to invite you to close your eyes, put out your hands for the Lord if you'd like to. Father, we want to see what you see. You said to set your mind on things above. Father, I confess that my mind has been set on earthly things. I confess, Lord, that I've been consumed with the plastic, with the vein, with the passing, with the vapors of this age. It's troubled my heart. 
It's troubled my life. It's troubled my family. Whole families are being disrupted by the cultural societal pressure. Set my mind on things above right now. I commit my mind to you. I commit my thoughts to heaven. I commit my desires to the things of God. I will fix my gaze, the eyes of my heart, the eyes of my understanding. I will fix them on you, Jesus, on your kingdom, on your glory. I will fix my eyes on you. I'll fix my hope on you. Lord's going to set some hearts free from a spirit of anxiety, even this morning. Those that have been troubled, those that have felt anxious on the inside, the Lord wants to set the captives free, even this morning. Lord, I set my mind on you. My citizenship is in heaven. Even the disciples, they came back to the Lord rejoicing. He said, don't rejoice that you had power over demons. Rejoice that your name's written in heaven. Do you know your name is written in heaven? It's inscribed on the palms of God's hands. Isaiah tells us that he's inscribed us on the palms of his hands. He says, you're mine. I've got this. I've got this. I know what's going on. I know how to get my people through the storm. I've got this. I am calling you to victory. I am calling you to power. I am calling you to let go of the temporal and embrace that which flows from me. We want to drink from that river of pleasure, my God. Set us free. Our hope is in you, Lord. This morning, if you'd like to respond to the Holy Spirit, he's touching your heart. Saying, I got to be anchored in the blood of Jesus. I got to fellowship with the Holy Spirit. This is what I've been made for. And I'm realizing there's a gap. There's a longing inside my soul. Others of you are going, I've got to get uprooted from this age and plant my roots in the age to come. Because I feel like a wind being blown about in the storm right now. I feel like a tree, rather. We want to invite you to come to the front. The Lord wants to help us. He wants to give us grace. He wants us to, the, to return to that apostolic gospel, that, that first love, that first devotion to Him. To not just make it through this storm, the one that's on the horizon the one that's after that and the one that's after that and the one that's after that all the way until the storm on the horizon is Jesus himself coming in the glory of his father anyone else in the room that's sick in your body and you'd like to receive prayer for healing we want to pray with you we want to invite you to come down to the front we have a ministry team here to pray with you come Holy Spirit Come, Holy Spirit, release power. Release the power of the Holy Spirit upon our hearts. Right now, we realign. We repent. We return to the Lord. We return to you. We love you, Jesus. We love you. We're in this for you. We're in this for you. Release our ministry team, leaders, to come and pray for those that are up here. Cause our hearts to burn. Can wash up.